I would like to start by um, revisiting the chapter just before this one so we get the context of what is happening. But the message of this morning's service is quite simple. Do you love me? Perhaps before we get into the passage, uh, we've uh, prayed for an offering for compassion in Africa. Yes? A couple of years ago, I was in Uganda, where I have uh, a couple of friends who work for Compassion, and in travelling around, I visited one project where, which is a Compassion Centre, where the children are assessed and uh, uh, supported on a, a regular basis. Medical support is given and so on. So I would commend the work of Compassion to you. Nobody does it better than they do. Right, let's come to the subject matter for today. And I want to take you, if I may, to events a few days before the passage we've had read to us. Thank you, Martin. There was a lady, a woman called Mary, standing outside a tomb, and she was weeping. She was devastated. She had been following Jesus, as had many people, for years, several years. And it all seemed to have gone terribly wrong. And she probably stood by the cross and watched Jesus in his final hours. She knew where they had buried him. She had gone with the intention of embalming his body. She knew she loved this man very much because he had made the world seemed to have some sense and meaning to it, and he had given her meaning and sense in her life. So there she was, weeping outside an empty tomb. And she saw this man standing nearby. If you've taken his body, tell me where you've put him so that I can go and anoint his body. She was confused. She was broken. She was uh, unable to hold back her tears. And this is one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of the Bible. Jesus says to her, Mary. That's all he said. He knew who she was. In that instant, her eyes were opened. She suddenly realised that the terrible tragedy of recent days wasn't yet, that wasn't the end of the story. Her response, Master. How brief, how eloquent, how pungent, how powerful. All Jesus needed to do was to show himself to this weeping Right, let's uh, forward the clock a few hours. Jesus appears to his disciples in the upper room. Thomas wasn't there. And when he heard of it, he said, well, unless I see his hands and put my finger in the holes in his hands and unless I put my hand in his side, I don't believe you. Of course, Jesus then came again and Uncomfortably for Thomas, Jesus had heard what he'd said. 
allegedly uh, when Jesus wasn't around. Thomas, come and put your finger in my hand. Come and put your hand and put it into my side. Jesus hears the things that we say, even if he's not physically present. Uncomfortably for Peter, Jesus knew that he had denied Jesus three times when Jesus was dragged off to be interrogated, do you remember? And we have this lovely account of Jesus restoring Peter. And so we come to this beautiful location, the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Would you look at the picture behind me for a moment? I've stayed by the side of a lake very similar to that in Uganda. <coughs> uh, the Sea of Galilee itself is very beautiful. It's about 11 miles long and about 7 miles wide. So a lot bigger than this lake. And also different because it doesn't have so many trees around it, but it has beautiful hills rolling up into the Judean hillside. Sorry, Galilean hillside. Hands up if you've seen the Sea of Galilee, if you've actually been there, so you know what I'm talking about. I once had the joy of learning some Hebrew dances on the top of the building we were staying in Tiberias. And the moon was shining silver, and the whole lake was shining like a mirror. It was just wonderful. So imagine the scene. Jesus is there by the lake and there's a barbecue going right by the water's edge. And seven of the disciples had been out fishing and they hadn't caught so much as a sardine. Peter knew that lake like the back of his hand. Jesus had borrowed Peter's boat and talked from it earlier. And then Jesus had said to Peter, come on, let's go out, let's go out a bit into deeper water and put down your nets for a catch. And uh, they said to him, we, we fished all night and we didn't catch a thing. But they did what Jesus said, and you know the story. This is the previous occasion when there was a great catch of fish. Then, Peter's reaction was, Go away from me, Lord. I'm an unclean person. I don't deserve to be anywhere near you. Jesus' response was, I'm going to make you fishers of men. Had they learned that they'd been called to be fishers of men rather than fishers of fish? So, we seem to be back where we started. So the fishermen were running ashore. They were probably tired. Uh, they'd worked all night. They were probably a bit frustrated. And this stranger is standing <coughs> on the shore. Have you got any fish? Rather embarrassing. No. Put your net on the right side. Who does he think he is? Tell us fishermen what to do. Somehow there was an authority in the voice. They didn't know who this stranger was. They dropped their nets. 
embarrassing perhaps, they tried all night, no effect. But the master of the universe was standing on the seashore. He knew where the fish ball was, is that how you describe a tightly compressed uh, group of fish? How remarkable. Who was the first person to suddenly realize what was going on? It was the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the author of this narrative. The man who wrote three letters to encourage God's people later in life. The man who was serving hard labor on the Isle of Patmos at the end of his life. One of the other disciples who was there in the boat for this incident, Peter, he was able to write, we didn't tell you cleverly invented stories when we told you about the coming and glory of the Lord because we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He was referring to the transfiguration of Jesus on that mountain just Peter, James, and John. John, the one we've just been talking about. But something wonderful has happened to Peter in the three years that he walked with Jesus. He was the one that said, Oh Lord, everybody else might run away and abandon you, but I will never. And then what happens? You know, he let the Lord down badly. If I'd been Peter, I would have been a bit embarrassed to be told, that's Jesus on the shore. Uh, there would have been a bit of a tension between the relationship between Jesus and Peter. Peter would feel awkward. But on this occasion, he shows us that he's no longer a fisherman. Why? There were 153 fish in that net, all of them huge. Now, I was walking around Broadwater Lake at Godalming. Uh, last year, when they were taking stock of the fish in the lake, they do this annually, I don't know if you've seen it. And so there were a whole lot of men there in large Wellingtons coming up to their, their chest, and they netted half the lake. And we had to be going by as they pulled the, lake, the net in to an area about 10 feet by 6 feet. And all these enormous carp were sort of swirming around, there was scarcely enough room for them to swim. They were all bundled up together, just like this scene at Galilee. And the fish in Broadwater Lake, some of them are two feet long. Is, it, is there anybody who's a fisherman here? Hands up? No? Now, if I'd been a fisherman, and I am a fisherman, I'd love to tell you about the 17 edible crab I caught at Pol's Egg in Cornwall at one low tide. I'd love to tell you about the fish that I caught once, a conger eel. Really, a conger eel, five feet long, but I won't bore you with all that stuff. Any fisherman can tell you the size of his largest catch, even years later. I can anyway. There were all these fish in the net. This was the catch of a lifetime for Peter. This time, they were large fish. Last time, doesn't say so. If I'd been a fisherman, I would have wanted to stay and admire that and see that it was safely brought to shore. 
What does, he, what does Peter do? He grabs his uh, garment around him and jumps in the sea and swims ashore. Leaves the others to sort out the amazing catch. Peter's heart is now not with fish, but with something else. So he comes to the shore and eventually they all get to the shore dragging the fish in the net. It's too heavy to heave into the boat. And there's the barbecue. By now they realise that it's Jesus. Jesus knew where they were. He knew they were tired. He knew they were hungry. He knew they were confused and uncertain what they were supposed to do next. For three years they walked with him. They'd learned. They'd even healed people. They had handed out bread and fish to people on the hill nearby. Now Jesus had been killed and he kept on popping up again. What's supposed to happen? And they watched as Jesus said, well, bring some of the fish you've caught. This is a pot luck breakfast all right jesus is the host he's got the bread he's got some fish cooking but he needs their contribution as well and it says he took the bread with his hands his hands with the holes inside his hands wounded his hands showing what's happened to him in the last few days. He gives them the bread and the fish. They have a hearty breakfast. They are nourished. Jesus is the one to nourish us all. He shows them his love by ministering to them. Is it significant that the gospel narratives conclude with Jesus talking to Peter? except that he calls him Simon. Did you notice that? The word Simon means a reed, like those reeds growing by the shores of the lake, swaying in the breeze, weak and bendy, not terribly useful. If you break them, they don't float, they sink. In some parts of the world, like here, they make boats out of reeds. They even make rafts on the, on the lake in Bolivia, Titicata. They even have houses made of reeds on the lake. Did you know that if you break the reed, it is no longer waterproof and it sinks? Now the master of the universe, who has demonstrated his supremacy over the natural world by pointing the disciples to the fish, he is the one of whom it was said in Isaiah 42, when the prophet speaks of Jesus who is to come, he will not break a bruised reed. Peter was a bruised reed. Simon, and we should call him, that was his name. He'd messed up big time. What I love is that Jesus did not remind Peter of his failure. He didn't rake over the uncomfortable past. He didn't pick over 
the mistakes, of which there have been plenty. Simon, do you love me? It also says in Isaiah 42 of this coming Messiah, not only he will not break a bruised reed, because if you do it ceases to be useful, it says he will not snuff out a dimly burning wick. Can you imagine a little olive oil lamp and the oil has run out and the flame is flickering and it's about to go out? It may be that there are some of us here we can identify with either of these images, a bruised reed, bent over, blown around. I realise that as a church you've been through a bruising time. Jesus comes and he says to you, do you love He comes to restore, to build up, to strengthen, to nourish. When Jesus appeared to Mary outside the tomb, there was an absence of explanation. He just says, Mary. That was enough for her. Rabboni, master. And her tears turned to joy. For Peter, it's different. Peter, do you, Simon, do you love me? Simon is that bruised reed, swaying in the breeze, pushed this way and whacked that far too easily. Jesus, of course, had said to him, you are Simon, but you are going to be Peter, a rock. Not like that little pebble by the shore of the lake, not even like that boulder over there that you can sit on. You are going to be a rock, a rock like the rock of Gibraltar. A few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of sailing around the coast of Britain, and we went around Land's End and around the Lizard Peninsula. I don't know if you're familiar with the best county in the country. <laughs> you see some rocks there, massive cliffs that have withstood millennia of Atlantic storms. That was the sort of person that Jesus wanted Peter to become, and he was going to become that too. So here we see the master craftsman reshaping Peter, who was the reed, and is going to be the rock. Simon, do you love me? The actual word is agape. Do you agape me? I'm sure you know that word. That deep, intense love which is not seeking anything in return. Peter replies, Lord, you know that I filia you. I, I love you as a one brother loves his brother with deep affection. Jesus says again, Simon, do you agape me? He gets a similar response. A third time, Jesus says, Simon, do you filia me? Do you love me? That's a, a weaker word for love. Peter is creased up at this point. He's embarrassed. Lord, you know everything about me. You know that I filia. I love you. My question to us here this morning is this. Jesus says, do you love me? He's not here to rake over the past. Yes, he's aware of our bruises, 
our pain, our disappointment, our frustration, those disciples knew all of those words for different reasons. Jesus comes to them. He appears to them. That's the best medicine there could ever be. Jesus himself. In a moment, we are going to take communion. We are going to share in bread and wine. And like Peter, we need to be in a realigned relationship with Jesus. We've all messed up. Some of us still do. Some of us are married and maybe we've spoken things to our spouse that afterwards we regret. Many of our failures, failures have to do with what comes out of our mouth. Some of us have children and they exasperate us. Some of us have grandchildren and they also exasperate us. <coughs> and we regret sometimes the things that we say. Some of us, we have thought things that perhaps we would prefer nobody else to know about. Some of us have, have uh, indulged our passions and desires in a way which didn't honour God. So as we prepare for communion, let's, let's bring our confession to God in the quietness of our own heart, knowing that as Peter is with Jesus, there is no rebuke. There is no, I told you so. There is acceptance and gentle wooing. Jesus had work for Peter to do. Tend my lambs. Care for my sheep. Feed my sheep. He's speaking to Peter, who is to become a bishop, to tend for the flock of God. Now there's a practical application for all of us here. We are all bruised in various ways. What was Jesus' medicine for people who were bruised? Answer, give them breakfast. Answer, demonstrate that he is Lord of the universe, including all the fish in that lake and every other lake. comes and he says, it's me. Some of those disciples saw Jesus on the top of the mountain, in his heavenly splendour, in his magnificence. I'm intrigued that John, who was party to these events, the one who actually leaned on the body of Jesus when they had suppers together in different places, he was the one whom Jesus loved, it is said. Jesus had his friends, he had his three special friends, Peter, James and John, of which John was the closest. We all need our friends, we need our special friends. We need people who know the worst about us, but are still committed to us. And that was Jesus for them. Let me remind us of Jesus appearing to John on the Isle of Patmos. It's shaped... Like a moon, it's only about, what is it, three, four miles long, just off the coast of Turkey. And when Jesus appears in his heavenly splendour, what does John do? 
he ends up on the floor. He becomes a lump of quivering jelly because he sees again Jesus in his heavenly splendor, his face glowing brighter than the sun. I think I may have told you about my friend Behrang from Iran, who in the process of becoming a Christian, which was a real struggle for him because he was descended from the prophet Muhammad, both on his father's side and on his mother's side. And if you're in one of that select category in Iran, you get special status. You even have an honorific title on your passport, a Sayyid. There was an awful lot of spiritual conflict going on in his life. And he said, oh Jesus, if you are really there, if you are true, show yourself to me. He was a doctor, he was no idiot. And for several days he declined to go to his hospital. He stayed in his room and he prayed and he read scripture. Jesus, if you are true and you are real, show yourself to me. Guess what happened? Jesus appeared in physical form to him. He was not able to describe what he saw. His sister, who was in the house, was aware that something was going on. She burst into the room. He was there on the floor. He'd lost the capacity to speak. But there was something about his face which was strangely radiant. He'd had an encounter with the living God. Not many people get that privilege. But we are here to encounter the living God. He is real. He is true. And he is bathed in light. The Shekinah, effulgent light, the outraying of God's magnificent glory. We see glimpses of it in this story. We see glimpses of it as we worship here. We see glimpses in the life of Jesus. This is Jesus, our Lord. Let's come to him. Let's tell him <coughs> that we love him. Because his question to us is, as it was to Simon, do you love me? Now for a woman, this is, is more comfortable language. A woman finds it easy to love. Think of that same Mary who came to Jesus a few days before his crucifixion and she had a very expensive bottle of perfume, yes? She knew that she loved Jesus. She knew that Jesus was very special. She probably knew that Jesus was the Messiah. And she poured it all out, the whole bottle. One in John's Gospel, it says it was on his feet. And in Luke, on his head. Do you know, when Jesus hung on the cross, there was a fragrance about him. Because that's, that oil of nard was so pungent and pure. And ladies, you know that if you take pure perfume, not the eau de parfum diluted with alcohol, but the pure stuff, put it on your wrists, it stays there for ages, doesn't it? When the soldiers were lashing the back of Jesus, they, they could smell some amazing aroma. When that crown of thorns was pushed down on the head of Jesus, there was a beautiful 
fragrance, all because of Mary's love. Peter, do you love me? Mary, do you love me? Now it's astonishing that this outrageous act of devotion that Mary brought to Jesus, uh, Jesus told her, look what you have done, you have anointed my body for burial. She could judge the moment in a way that the men certainly couldn't. What a beautiful thing she did. And Jesus said to her, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what you have done will be told. That's, is that the only example that occurs in all four Gospels? I don't know, but it does occur in all four Gospels. And wherever Wycliffe Bible translators go in the world to translate, they will always start with one of the Gospels. So wherever the Gospel is presented throughout the world, Mary's beautiful act of devotion is given. Now that was an outrageous and extravagant act, but a beautiful act and an appropriate act. I want to address the men for a minute because this is uncomfortable territory for us men. We are not given to deep emotion. The idea of love, how can you love a saviour? What is that supposed to look like? Men, how do we love God with the passion that Peter loved God? Well, I think the best example is probably David in the Old Testament. The thing about worship is that it's so focused on the Lord that you don't actually care what other people think. Mary was rebuked for her wasteful behaviour. She didn't care. She wanted to show her devotion and her absolute delight in her Lord. David did the same when he danced before the Ark of the Covenant as it was being brought into the, the um, Temple of Jerusalem or the Tabernacle. People told him off, especially his wife who was embarrassed. Did he care? He was exulting in God. And he knew much less about God than we do because he hadn't, he hadn't uh, experienced Jesus. How wonderful, how marvellous. So men, I invite you, I challenge you, don't let the women drive the worship in this church. Are you going to be a worshipper yourself? Are you going to open your mouth and articulate your appreciation of your Lord and your Saviour and your friend? Do you appreciate all that he's done for you? If, if so, well, if not, the example of David in the Psalms is a good place to find words that we can use to express. In the book of Judges, we have this lovely phrase, the leaders led and the people followed. May God give you leaders, lots of them, who will lead with passion, driven by a beautiful love, delighting in, devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ, for there is no one half as wonderful, half as magnificent, half as deserving as he is. So let's come now to communion, and perhaps if the two friends who were going to lead us in prayer would come and join me, please.